Rebecca Walker is the daughter of Alice Walker, the African-American author of The Color Purple and Jewish-American civil rights lawyer Mel Leventhal. At the age of 21, she coined the term third-wave feminism in an essay for Ms. Magazine and focused on improving the diversity and intersectionality of the feminist movement. She later established the Third Wave Fund, a non-profit organization supporting young women in activism and leadership roles. She speaks openly about her parents' divorce and her mixed-race identity in her memoir, Black, White and Jewish, an autobiography of a shifting self, and has shared her ideas on feminism, race and power in other works since. Hi, I'm Natalie Sekulovska and Rebecca joined me for an interview a few weeks ago while she was in Sydney for the All About Women talk at the Opera House. So my parents met in the civil rights movement in America in the 60s. My father was a young, idealistic law student, Jewish and white and sweet, and he was recruited by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund to help desegregate public schools and to bring some basic services to black communities. My mother was an aspiring African-American writer from the South who went to Mississippi to register voters and, and, and talk to African-American women about their stories. They fell in love. Um, it was against the law for them to marry at that time, so they ended up uh, marrying in New York and then returning to Mississippi, which is where they met. Um, and a few years later, they had me, and I was, uh, you know, called a movement child. And I, my, I, I was, um, I think they, they deeply hoped that um, that my body and my life and my identity would be kind of free of of the racial signifiers that had been so debilitating and um, unnecessary uh, in American history. And, um, and so my life really has been one of negotiating different racial expectations and divides and um, trying to um, embody and articulate a self that, um, that is free of other people's expectations and cultural demands of, of my skin color. Um, in, in such a way that I'm both um, um, sort of um, loyal to and supportive of different communities, but also um, have identified for myself a kind of sovereignty from uh, these kinds of um, different sort of tribal loyalties uh, so that I can kind of strategically identify when it's important politically, but in terms of where I live and where my psyche rests, um, I always want to return to uh, the space of, of sort of infinite potential and, and being that, um, that I think my parents wanted for me. Um, can you unpack the term movement child? Sure. You know, what, what, does that, what does that mean? Well, as I said, for them it really meant that I was a child of the civil rights movement, you know, and, and as a, a mixed race baby, I was, I was very much um, kind of the epitome of what they were fighting for, right? The the eradication of um, of segregation, of of the sense that black and white couldn't coexist peacefully together, that black people were somehow inferior, that um, you know that you know the mixing of the races would create a kind of abomination, you know, um, and and so the civil rights movement was was challenging all of those ideas in different ways you know in the courts in the schools in communities you know all in that way 
And, and by having me, I think, you know, being a movement child, I was, I was born of those ideas. And so um, they, they were sort of sending me on a you know, rocket ship into the future with the hope that, um, that I would, you know, manifest all of their, their, uh, their aspirations and, and commitments. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring up that kind of, you know, that association, you know, with a name. I mean, you, you changed your last name, you know, to your mother's name yeah. um, a while ago. And, you know, it, I think it's, it's interesting to ask you, you know, why you decided to do that. Yes. I write about that in Black, White and Jewish. I changed my name when I was 15, actually. Um, and I did it in a period when I was very much identifying with blackness and I had found out that my father's last name was the last name of his father, obviously, who had abandoned him when he was very, very young and had been very abusive to my grandmother. And so the, the sort of combination of those two things, of, of really um, feeling that I was a black person and wanted to identify with my black ancestry and that my father's father, whose name I was now carrying, was an abusive person who had, who had done such damage, um, I felt that I, I wanted to, to legally um, claim this trajectory and not the other. Um, but it was a big decision, you know. And I remember worrying that it would hurt my father's feelings, you know, more than anything. But he was wonderful and, and, and understood and... Um, uh, and I think it was good for, for my mother. I think it was very affirming for her because for many years as a mixed-race person, I had felt, you know, this sort of doing the dance of race. You know, I, I had felt often like I wanted to be distant from her in order to get approval from white communities, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's all very old at this point. I mean, we've been talking about this forever, and it, it's not sort of up anymore. But I think that for me, but I think that at that point it was important for me to claim her in such an important visible way. So you spoke at the All About Women talk at the Sydney Opera House and um, you spoke specifically about how women should reclaim their beauty mm. and I guess use it as an act of resistance. Mm. Um, you know, what prompted you to speak about beauty and I guess how it intersects with different ideals like feminism, identity and you know, even power? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the most, you know, when, when I founded Third Wave, I think I was keenly aware of how many young women specifically were not identifying with feminism and were not engaging in social activism and were not challenging sort of patriarchal ideas of what they were entitled to, you know, in terms of freedoms and, and rights and et cetera. And I think that the same kind of weakening of women's self-esteem and identity is now very much located in their sense of self, which is being compromised by the kind of, you know, cosmetic industrial complex, the um, sort of oversaturation of, uh, of our culture with images of beauty that don't look like almost any real person that we know. <laughs> um, and so I was thinking about, you know, how we can continue to, to, to be empowered in the face of so much um, political oppression, you know, the, the age of Trump, and thinking about how beauty, we need to really make sure that we're using beauty on, on our behalf as opposed to having it used against us. 
So it's important to create a narrative of self-acceptance and redefining beauty in a way that can be healing to oneself and can give one the, the energy and, and an insight um, that they need to be able to go out and do the important work that needs to be done. You know? So it was fascinating to me that in the talk, when I asked the audience, how many of you consider yourselves beautiful? I mean, it was like 10 people raised their hands. And that was heartbreaking because when you are sitting there, I mean, this is hun hundreds of people were in that room. If, if all of those women are sitting there spending a lot of time feeling that they are inadequate somehow, that they are not um, presentable, that they are not worthy of being considered beautiful and or loved as a result, for that reason, you know, I think it, it was important for me to talk about beauty. And also, you know, just purely aesthetic beauty, you know, that part of what sort of hyper-capitalism and industrialization and, you know, everything that we're in right now has done is it has to do with destroying the aesthetics of indigenous cultures, of, you know, the, the earth of, you know, um, I was talking about, you know, in, in America, driving down these endless freeways that, that are just lined with hideous, ugly um, strip malls and, and sort of, you know, denatured earth and what that does to the spirit, you know, and how important it is for us to reclaim, you know, the, 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 the actual, um, the handmade, the, 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 the beauty that has come out of all of our different cultures and is being, you know, sort of erased and replaced by um, disposable objects fairly empty of meaning. And um, in your Ms. Magazine article, so Becoming the Third Wave, um, you say that, Quote, the ultimate rally of support for the male paradigm of harassment sends a clear message to women, shut up, even if you speak, we will not listen, end mm. quote. Mm. I guess, what's it like reading or even listening to that in kind of the present context of the Me Too movement? It's great, actually, because as I said, I think that, you know, it's hard for many people in this moment to imagine how much silence there was, you know, so, so the message of shut up was the predominant message. So the way that we're hearing the, the sort of uplift and the, and the excitement and the, you know, the stories, more and more stories, you know, me too, me too, me too. And, and, and the, 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 the messages of shut up are, are tiny, you know, com in comparison. It was the exact reverse then, you know. So the shut up was like predominant. And um, so it's... it's um, it's wonderful to feel as if the work that so many of us have done for the last, you know, two decades has, has, has shifted the culture in such a way that this moment can actually happen, you know. Because I think that if we hadn't continued to speak out, the world would not be reacting in this way. And I think kind of going on from that, you know, what I find pretty interesting about Me Too is that, you know, even feminists themselves, you know, have a range of opinions yeah. about the movement. Um, do you think that there is a generational divide in the way that second, third and fourth feminists think or is it just... I don't think so. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think it's generational um, because in, in every moment of this, there have been the people who have a critique. I mean... When we were talking about um, consent and sexual assault and the language of, of um, you know, the idea of talking to young women about um, all of these issues, 
in the 90s, you know, there were people saying if you talk too much about it in this way, as if, you know, that all these young women could become victims, that you're somehow creating a culture of victimhood, et cetera, and so forth. So, I mean, I feel like there's always that person who is saying that if you actually talk about the issues, you are infantilizing in some way, or you are, you know, making women create their identity around the problem that you are trying to address, which I have never found to be real. I mean, I can't imagine raising an issue and and kind of speaking directly to the way in which it affects human beings that then disempowers them. I mean, usually when you get more information, more knowledge about your situation, you're able to to, to awaken to the actual power dynamics and, and, and what the narrative is. You're no longer just sort of walking through not knowing what's going on, you know, so you, you now know what's going on and you don't feel less prepared. I mean, in my experience, you feel more prepared, you know. Um, so I don't, and I, and I haven't seen this break on generational lines. I've just seen people who have this critique, you know, across the board, you know, really. I mean, it would be interesting to, see, to, to talk to women who are coming forward and, and, and sort of talk to them about whether or not speaking about their experience or hearing about their, these experiences has created in them a sense of victimhood. I mean, I would like, I mean, I'd be, I think that'd you know, be I'd be curious yeah. to hear what they say. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine it, but it's possible. And if they do have that response, then we could, we could go from there and try to figure out a way to deal with it. Yeah, I, <laughs> you mean, know? I mean, I agree. I think there's been a lot of kind of focus on, you know, talking about it, but not actually talking to the people who kind of matter in yeah. this, in this narrative or, so yeah, I think that's, that's a yeah. pretty important point. Yeah, it's always better to talk to people and figure out why they believe what they believe. The, 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 the press, you know, it can become so polarizing and sound bitey and, you know, just talk to people, really, before you start speaking for them. Like, I've not read a piece by someone saying, you know, since Me Too, I have started to think of myself as a victim or, you know, potential prey in a way that's debilitating. I think I would, I would expect to read more about, you know, from, from a woman who would say, now I understand that I am often in this position and I'm more able to negotiate the position knowing what I know. And I would feel more comfortable speaking out about it and setting boundaries. You know what I mean? So anyway, that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, I mean, I think it's it's also fair to say that, you know, all oppressions, you know, in a certain way are interconnected. Mm-hmm. How intersectional do you think feminism is today? And do you think that we've done enough to embrace people from various races and, you know, also the LGBTQIA community? Well, I think this is the, this was, you know, the main project of Third Wave, which was to be intersectional in our approach to feminism um, and to make sure that you know, women of color, gay women, disabled women, um, neurodivergent women, you know, all the different kinds of, um, of, of, of women um, had a voice, you know, and, and had their specific issues, you know, addressed and, and embraced on the feminist platform. And I think that it's been a struggle, you know, um, but I do feel looking out at Me Too and seeing the ways in which 
Um, it's a much more diverse movement than, than any iteration of the feminist narrative I've seen, you know. I feel that, that there's a lot of possibility here. I feel there's a lot, there are a lot more allegiances being formed and um, a lot more empathy, a lot more sensitivity, a lot more openness to hearing about the experiences of different women and what they need from us, you know, from, from a movement, really. Um, so if it's, you know, immigrant mothers in America talking about the deportation of members of their family, um, or it's, you know, African-American women talking about, you know, the criminalization of their sons or their husbands, or if it's, you know, asexual women, <laughs> you know, we have a big asexual community now talking about, you know, being stereotyped and, um, marginalized based on their lack of desire to be sexual beings in the way that they are quote unquote supposed to be as women. I mean all of these things are now being listened to and, and considered by by more people, you know, that, that that identify as feminists. So I think I think I think we're getting there. So yeah, you mentioned openness yeah. and possibility, you know, when it comes to, you know, these feminist movements. Um, how can we, I guess, open up a better dialogue with men Yes, now? yes. Well, that's another thing that was really front and center with Third Wave. Um, I did a book called What Makes a Man, 22 Writers Imagine the Future, which was all about how important I think it is for the women's movement to take on um, the ways in which men are being sort of forced into a toxic masculinity from a very young age. Um, I interviewed 200 men, and almost all of them talked about how they were either verbally, psychologically, or physically um, um, manipulated into adopting an identity of what it means to be a man that is very, um, you know, emotionally shut down, um, sort of cultivates a lack of empathy, um, is very kind of worker-driven, provider-driven to the exclusion of familial relationships and ties that is much more about militarism and, and, and you know, than it is about um, compassion and tenderness. And, and they really were injured by that. And so I think that talking much more about how, you know, the patriarchal system is damaging to men, um, it, it's very important because men once they understand the ways in which they are suffering as a result of this structure and, and what and what the, the expectations are, um, will be more open to joining with, with women um, in trying to dismantle these very unacceptable pillars, you know, structural pillars of oppression that are that are named and gendered and, and raced, you know. Um, so with the word feminist or feminism, you know, it's almost as if it's become the new F word in the sense that it, it can be used as a slur against women or to mock women um, as a way of kind of belittling them and their experiences. How do you think we can, I guess, rise above that and reclaim the word feminist like we're trying to reclaim our own beauty? Mm. Well, this is a very long, you know, old discussion. I, you know, the, when I started with Third Wave, you know, no young women wanted to call themselves feminists. I think um, that seems to be changing quite a bit. 
and uh, and and I think that's very interesting um, and exciting in that we can use the term and we can use the reference to the, to the movement and our connection to the movement very strategically. I think it's important to help people understand that feminism um, is is about making structural change. You know, it's about trying to ensure that um, all human beings have the, the, the rights and privileges that they should and that they are not discriminated against or marginalized um, based on any kind of arbitrary uh, physical feature. And I think that the more people understand um, that feminism is fighting for them too, the less they will feel this kind of antagonism. Now obviously, people who want to, to retain their power and, and want to continue to oppress people and be engaged in that project um, will resist any kind of narrative that is counter to them. And so I think at this point, you know, people need to understand that when they disavow feminism, um, they are really disavowing a movement that is really working on their behalf. Um, so it's a kind of shifting of the paradigm, uh, the value system, that I think can, can help to undermine the kind of structural um, institutionalization of white male privilege. And um, so you have a son, mm. and you've been fairly open in discussing your journey towards embracing motherhood. Yeah. Um, what was that journey like for you? It was challenging. You know, I grew up in a very feminist community that didn't necessarily support motherhood as a, as a means to empowerment. There was a sense that becoming a mother was kind of um, enslaving oneself, you know, that that then you, your energy goes to kind of supporting another being that is just going to be used to work as a, a sort of worker in the machine of hyper-capitalist, you know, patriarchy, and, you know, better to pursue, you know, your PhD or to become a head of state or some, somebody in a position of power, you know, so that you could actually change the world in, in an important way. But I had a deep longing for a child, and... Um, and and so, you know, I followed that longing and, and sort of contradicted the, the ideas that I was raised in. And, and it was, I had to really grapple with that um, and, um, and, and come to the conclusion that raising a child, especially a boy, you know, in our culture, to be anti-sexist, to be, um, um, you know, not toxic, um, was 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 a great contribution and 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 for me in terms of my empowerment I think having a child gave me a deeper feeling of connection with humanity and 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 it was a beat of you know it's no longer just all about me there was a kind of dissolution of the ego that I think was very significant to my maturation um, as a human being so I mean, I, on this side of it, I would say, you know, having a child, you know, it's a lot harder than I thought it would be in terms of energy. And I understand now what my mother and others were saying. I, I understand it in a visceral way. And, and also right now looking around at the culture and what's happening, I, you know, 
I think I would be even more on the fence today if I were trying to make the decision because it's a lot to bring a human being into this world and to try to protect them in ways that you often cannot, you know. Um, and, um, and, and so there's all of that. But I, I negotiated it to the best of my ability. I'm still negotiating it. And, um, and I adore my son and I have great um, faith that he will continue to um, bring a lot of these ideas that I think are so important to the rest of the world, you know. So I remember his father saying to me when I was thinking about it, he was saying, you know, the, the, the good people have to have children too. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, and I don't mean to, to polarize the world in that way, but the people who, who will fight for equality and justice need to have children too, you know. It becomes a numbers game at a certain point. So uh, what's next for you? What are you working on at the moment? I'm working on so many different things. Um, my, my last novel, A Day, which was about my time living on a small island off the coast of Kenya and marrying a devout Muslim man, or actually not marrying, accepting his proposal to marry, and then getting caught in the middle of a civil war and um, having to be airlifted out of the country in the middle of the Gulf War, um, that, that book is being adapted for film, and I'm in the middle of writing the screenplay for that. The book that I published before Ade, which is called Black Cool, which is about the aesthetics of, of blackness um, and, how, and how cool is actually an African cultural product in the same way that yoga is a, is a cultural product of India, um, is being adapted into a documentary series. And so I'm producing and developing that. Um, I just wrote on a great TV show called One Mississippi, which is about the life of sort of fictionalized life of the comedian Tig Notaro, who's incredible and funny, and you can watch that on Amazon Prime. It wasn't picked up for another season, but it was, it was a good run. So yeah, you know, and I'm going to keep using my voice as long as I can to, to try to make spaces for all of the people who, um, who resonate with it and who find some um, connection and feel less alone as a result of coming into contact with what with what I'm doing. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview with me. Oh, you're so welcome. It was really great talking to you. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Hello to all of your listeners out there. <laughs> I'm so happy that you guys are tuning in and um, and staying awake, you know, to to what's going on. Keep going. You're on FBI Radio 94.5.